Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be delightful to you, O God, our rock, our wind, and our redeemer. This morning I'm interested in empathy and how we can increase empathy in our lives. Jamil Zaki, a Stanford psychologist, has noted that reading fiction increases our empathy as we learn to see something from someone else's perspective. I suggest that poetry also increases empathy, for in poetry we too can peer from another's viewpoint. So I'd like to begin with a poem from William Stafford, where we not only peer from Stafford's point of view, but Stafford's empathic view of old people. As he waits in line, he imagines inhabiting the world of the very old. And by the time the poem is over, he has joined them. As you listen to the poem, can you relate to this world? Can you feel what it feels like? Waiting in line. You, the very old, I have come to the edge of your country and looked across. How your eyes warily look into mine when we pass. How you hesitate when we approach a door. Sometimes I understand how steep your hills are and your way of seeing the madness around you, the careless waste of the calendar the rush of people on buses. I have studied how you carry packages, balancing them better, giving them attention. I have glimpsed from within the gray-eyed look at those who push, and occasionally even I can achieve your beautiful, bleak perspective on the loud, the inattentive, shoving boars jostling past you toward their doom. With you from the pavement, I have watched the nation of the young like jungle birds that scream as they pass or gyrate on playgrounds, their frenzied bodies jittering with the disease of youth. Knowledge can cure them, but not all at once. It will take time. There have been evenings when the light has turned everything silver, and like you, I have stopped at a corner and suddenly staggered with the grace of it all. To have inherited all this, or even the bereavement of it, and finally being cheated, the chance to stand on a corner and tell it goodbye. Every day, every evening, every abject step or stumble has become heroic. You others, we, the very old, have a country. A passport costs everything there is. At the beginning of the poem, Stafford is looking empathically at old people. By the end, he says, we, the very old, have a country. He is there. He moved during the duration of the poem. Did we move at all? Do we know what it feels like to have a country? Do we hesitate when we approach a door? Do we understand how steep your hills are? 
One of my favorite podcasts is called The Hidden Brain by Shankar Vedantam. Many of you are probably familiar with it, or at least snippets of his reporting as a regular segment on NPR, where he reports uh, under the same title, The Hidden Brain. Anyway, The Hidden Brain podcast from July 29, July 29 2019, was about empathy. And Shankar Vedantam interviewed a leading researcher on the topic from Stanford University, Jamil Zaki, who I mentioned earlier. Zaki began by telling his, about his childhood. He was born in the U.S. to an Iranian father and a Colombian mother who divorced when Zaki was 12 years old. He recalls the struggle as a child to relate to both parents who could not relate to each other. They had such different values and priorities and goals and fears, which left Zaki in a limbo. At his mother's house, he learned how to maneuver in ways that made sense there, but those same ways did not make sense at his father's house. He loved both dearly and did not want to choose between one or the other. What should he do? Looking back now, Zaki says that this environment forced him to exercise and grow his empathy muscles. Wanting to be equally a part of both his mother and father, he learned to see things through both of their perspectives. While not needing to judge between the two, he could peacefully travel between these two worlds. Differences in values and priorities, goals, need not separate him from others. At a very formative time in his development, Zaki deeply understood that someone else's world was just as valid as his. His mother's world, his father's world, and his own world, all with their deep pain. They all had their value. They all had their limitations. In Jamil Zaki's most recent book entitled The War for Kindness, Building Empathy in a Fractured World, he maps out our empathy responses through social psychology research and suggests ways that we can better exercise our empathy muscles. One study that he cites, which I just love, is from a researcher from England, Mark Levine, who researched different groups of people and their responses towards each other. And of course, the best way to do this in England is with soccer fans. So he compared uh, fans of Manchester United and Liverpool. But just for fun, I'm gonna tell you this story, uh, this research project uh, using American football and the Chiefs and the 49ers uh, with the Super Bowl coming on. So anyway, the, the study was set up that he invited uh, a bunch of Chiefs fans to the university and had them sit down in a classroom and write down what it is about the Chiefs that they love. So they wrote down their response and then they were asked to walk across campus to a place where they could watch some film on the Chiefs. Well, it just so happened as this uh, group of fans was walking across the campus, a jogger, of course we know it's an actor, but a jogger fell right in front of him, sprained his ankle, was writhing in pain. Now this jogger was wearing a 49ers jersey. So the study was to see how these Chiefs fans would respond to the person wearing the 49ers jersey. There were other groups. Sometimes the person who fell was uh, wearing a neutral football jersey. Sometimes the person who fell was wearing a Chiefs jersey. 
And as we would expect, expect the, the group of Chiefs fans was much more likely to respond to and help and empathize with the person wearing the Chiefs jersey than the person wearing the 49ers jersey. But the second part of the study is, is the interesting part. They redid it all over again. But instead of asking the group before they had to make the trek from one classroom across the university to another classroom, they asked a different question. They didn't ask, what is it about the Chiefs that you love? But they asked, what is it about football that you love? How is football a beautiful sport? So the people wrote down their responses to that uh, question and then walked across campus, met somebody writhing in pain after, after falling from their jog, and guess what? They were much more likely to respond empath empathically to the person even wearing a 49ers jersey. And it might even happen if they would be wearing a Patriots jersey. <laughs> so what was the difference between these two scenarios, right? In the first situation, the fans were asked about what they loved about being a Chiefs fan. The second, they were asked about what they loved about being a football fan in general. The difference is all in the framing. It's in the way that you frame the boundaries of your group. And the way that you consciously frame the boundaries matters in how and if you will respond to others. If you belong to the Chiefs, you will respond to fellow Chiefs. If you belong to football, you will respond to fellow football fans. If, as Paul writes to the Corinthians, you say that you belong to Paul or Apollos or Cephas or even to Christ, and I might add the Mennonite Church or Bethel College Mennonite Church or whatever small group you may inhabit based on your family, your Sunday school class. If you say, I belong to Paul or I belong to Paulus, I belong to the Mennonite Church, and it creates division, then it creates separation among you. Paul asks us, please, to stop. As Peter Gorsden last week quoted Dale Shrug, we can hold our faith with a clenched fist or an open hand. If we do it with a clenched fist, it causes division. And Paul asks us to stop. In the words of Paul, be united in the same mind and the same spirit. Do not primarily identify yourself with anything, anything less than the message of the cross. Not with certain leaders, not by whom you were baptized, not even with eloquent wisdom. Identify with nothing less than the message of the cross. A message which, by the way, is foolishness to those who are perishing and the power of God to those who are living. This teaching of Paul is an impossibility. We will inevitably regress to small group identification, but we cannot let it have power over us and leave us blind or numb. As the study about the sports fans showed, conscious framing does make a difference in how we act in the world. We can expand the circle. We can see from different lenses, but it takes a conscious effort. Without a constant push towards different lenses, different perspectives, different groups, we are chained to parochialism, chained to tribalism. And it's not just a neutral parochialism, but a tribalism that can cause blindness, 
or even backlash against those who might not seem to be from your particular group. Ironically, empathy towards a narrow group to which you belong can cause you to be less empathic towards those who are not part of your group. Empathy doesn't just naturally spread. One study of police officers in Washington State revealed just that. Even though many officers get into the police business as a way to help citizens, to serve and protect a very empathic kind of motive, their bonds towards one another as police officers ends up trumping their bond towards the citizens. One of Zaki's research projects, he looks at officers' responses to other officers and potential police misconduct. Predictably, the officers were far more likely to stand behind their fellow officers who shot an unarmed man than the normal population. Even though the shooting was a travesty to many, including officers and citizens, the officers were adamant that these were good guys who just made a mistake. This kind of mentality could likely be said for teachers or nurses or pastors, business people. Whatever the group, if someone is part of your group and misconduct happens, you are likely to say it was a good person who made a mistake while the rest of the world sees it much differently, while even others in the church may see it much differently. In fact, as Zaki digs deeper into this paradox with other research, it seems as though a major indicator of someone's willingness to be empathic to a group which is not their own has to do with the strength of one's bond to their in-group. Turns out that for people who are extraordinarily empathic to their own group, even if they have some empathy towards outsiders, they are very unlikely to compromise or do anything that could threaten their own tribe. Because of this, Zaki suggests that if we want to open ourselves to other cultures, other groups, other perspectives, we might be unable to do so unless we first release our strong identification with our in-group. We have to release our grip on our group in order to have the emotional flexibility to empathize on a wider scale. When you start thinking about groups and the groups that you have been pulled into, not so much because of your choosing, but because of your associations, life becomes very interesting. It's a lens that you can play with and find freedom by not having to be bound by any particular tribe. It's a lens to look into your life and a lens to look at Jesus. As I close, I want us to begin to look through that lens upon Jesus. How did Jesus identify with certain groups? What were the insider-outsider dynamics that were happening in his situation? Just from the gospel today, it might be interesting to ask, why did Jesus start his ministry upon the arrest of John the Baptist? Was it that he didn't want to be seen as being in competition with John the Baptist and his followers? Was it that he didn't want to be seen as being a part of John the Baptist and his group? Later, as Jesus calls the fishermen, how is Jesus identifying himself and his movement? Is he picking from the influential in society or the lowly? 
In addition, who comes streaming to Jesus as he begins his ministry? It seems like the sick, the diseased, all the outcasts come. Jesus begins with them and is certainly able to empathize with them. And these are the people who are sitting on the mount to follow as Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount. Is he later able to empathize with those in power? What would it be like to see Jesus in his element? What were the decisions he was making? Who were the people he was empathizing with? How is it that he seemed to be at home wherever he went, with whomever he was with? Imagining Jesus grows our empathic muscles. As far as I'm concerned, this is all part of following the cross. Foolishness to those who want to stay entrenched in their own little group, their own eloquent wisdom, but salvation to those who are able to release to the power of God. A God who weaves all things together in life and death and resurrection by the power of love, clearly demonstrated through Jesus. Much broader than our tribalism, may we keep Jesus and Jesus' path always in mind. Amen.